the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us. Well, I was planning to interview a couple of folks we've been anticipating talking with for quite some time, Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. They are the co-authors of Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. It's a great book, post row to understand the uh, the arguments and what's, what lays ahead, but they they weren't able to join us. I spent most of the day preparing for that interview. So today we'll talk with Kevin Goose, Dry Bones Redeeming Your Past. That's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. No, no, I'm fine with it. I'm, I'm fine with it. Take a deep breath. Okay. Well, we will take a look at some of the uh, the day's headlines, actually for the last several days, and we will hear from Kevin Goose, Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. And we'll talk about um, what's happening to the rule of law and what that might mean moving forward as we anticipate the future of this great republic. Well, let's see. Where am I starting here? Um, Democrats have controlled both the House and the Senate since 2013 here in the state of Oregon. But there are some new polls that give Republicans reason to be optimistic in the Oregon legislature. I think the balance is always healthy, but that has not been the case here in Oregon. Well, Oregon Capital Chronicle reports that Republicans haven't controlled uh, Oregon's uh, government since Barack Obama's first campaign for president, but they're bullish this year about their legislative chances. Well, we'll see. An internal poll memo produced by the National Republican State Leadership Committee and shared with the Capital Chronicle suggests The Republicans have a rare opportunity to win in November, thanks to low opinions of President Biden and Oregon Democratic leaders. That's not a good thing that the public is opposed to their leaders, but that's a quote. Voters across Oregon have had enough and view Republican state lawmakers as the remedy to get the state out of a downward spiral and back on the right track. That's a quote from a committee spokesman, uh, spokesman, Zach Kraft, in a statement. All 60 House districts and 30 Senate districts are new this year following last year's post-census legislative redistricting. Legislative Democrats controlled redistricting and independent analysis um, like Dave redistricting website suggests the new district disproportionately benefit Democratic candidates. There was a lot of brouhaha about that earlier, but that's since died down. But polls, both the internal poll released by Republicans and earlier public surveys show that a majority of Oregon voters aren't pleased with the state's direction. More than 57 percent of the 600 likely voters surveyed by the national GOP polling firm between June 28th and the 30th said the state was on the wrong track. Now, does that translate into uh, more uh, Republicans in the Oregon legislature? Well, they asked about genetic or rather generic legislative candidates. Nearly 35 percent said they would definitely vote for a Republican. Another 12 percent said they would probably vote for the Republican. The same numbers were 10.5 percent and 32 percent for Democrats 
giving Republicans nearly a five-point lead on generic legislative polls, which serve a purpose, but a generic poll doesn't uh, reflect a specific individual running under one uh, or the other party uh, moniker. You might say, yes, I would vote for a Republican, but not that particular Republican. So it's interesting, but may not be as useful as suggested. About 52% of respondents said they disapprove of the job legislative Democrats are doing. 57% said government would work better with a more partisan balance. I would certainly agree with that in the state of Oregon. There's definitely a path for Republicans to a majority, and I don't think that path has been there for the last 20 years. That's a quote from Senate Minority Leader Tim Knope from Bend. Well, the Republican nominee for governor, Christine Drazen, had a one-point lead over Democratic nominee Tina Kotek with 32.4% of respondents saying they would vote for Drazen, 31.4% choosing Kotek, and 24.4% opting for non-affiliated candidate Betsy Johnson. Johnson released her new poll on Wednesday that showed her in a neck and neck with Kotek. Well, about 32 percent of respondents were Republicans, 39 percent Democrats, slightly lower than the party's vote uh, share in the most recent midterm election when Democrats made up 41 percent of the electric and electorate and Republicans, 33 percent. Non-affiliated voters, the largest group in the state of Oregon, have lower voting rates than those who choose a party, and they turn out at even lower rates in non-presidential elections. So rather interesting to consider the possibility that it might actually be a contest in terms of uh, who holds the majority or whether or not there's more of a balance in Oregon's uh, next legislature. We'll continue to follow that story as it develops. Well, in other news, President Biden's blame game, the president's being slammed for a tweet claiming Republicans are the ones at fault for America's economic problems. So it's the pandemic, it's Putin, and now it's the Republicans. It's interesting. You hold both the Senate and the House. You're in the White House, and yet it's someone else's responsibility. Legal. Um, well, let's see. There is a legal battle brewing. That's what I wanted to say. As Elon Musk responds after Twitter reportedly lawyered up to sue over the broken buyout. Now, this is going to be interesting because if it does end up in court, it might force um, Twitter to release reliable information about what they actually consist of rather than what they speculate in terms of, well, this these are real subscribers as opposed to the not so real subscribers. So we'll follow that story. In a case of funding fallout, $15 million in American Rescue Plan funds went to anti-racism and social activism programs for kids. These are American Rescue Funds for other purposes. Saying it was like cutting off my true self, an ex-trans teen is warning parents and backs a ban on state-funded gender-affirming care. Like cutting my true self off. Vaxxed and boosted, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer tested positive for COVID-19 as the Senate prepares to reconvene this week. And saying that's a wrap, Arizona has banned people from filming without within rather eight feet of police activity. Republican Arizona Governor Doug Ducey signed legislation banning residents from recording video within eight feet of police activity on Sunday. The law classifies... Uh, knowingly filming within eight feet of officers as a class three misdemeanor, which is punishable by up to 30 days in jail, $500 in fine and up to a year 
in probation, according to Arizona law. The law says officers must warn anyone filming at least once before they can be charged with a crime. The new law comes roughly a year after President Joe Biden's Justice Department announced an investigation into the Phoenix Police Department for reports of excessive force and mistreatment of homeless people. The investigation is still ongoing. I'm not sure what the disadvantage of uh, being filmed. You certainly can misinterpret what one sees in these um, phone videos, but we would not have known of some of the uh, the crimes committed by law enforcement if that had been the case in other parts of the country. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, some pretty bad news again. Economists issues a an ominous warning to Americans about upcoming inflation numbers, although there are those who still hold out. We're not going to see an, a recession or at least not much of a recession. Calling out Putin's playbook, a CNN host slammed President Biden and Europe for playing into the Russian dictator's hands. Flying under the radar, a new Netflix comedy special from Dave Chappelle is quietly released following the closer transphobic joke fallout, as it was referred to. Elon Musk has withdrawn his bid for Twitter, forcing a possible trial. CBS reports that Musk says he's withdrawing from his $44 billion deal to buy Twitter, throwing the social media company's immediate future into doubt. In a securities filing on Friday, he accused uh, uh, Twitter of lying about the number of bots and spam accounts on the platform, as well as failing to provide material he asked for. Well, that includes detailed data on the number of bot and spam accounts on Twitter, the company's methodology for calculating user numbers and backup materials detailing its financial valuation. Twitter chairman Brett Taylor says the Twitter board is committed to closing the transaction on the price and terms agreed upon with Mr. Musk and plans to pursue legal action to enforce the merger agreement. We are confident we will prevail in the Delaware Court of Chancery. Well, Town Hall says that Musk agreed to pay Twitter $1 billion in the event he terminated his decision in the short-term merger agreement. However, due to the specific performance in the long-form merger plan, it says that if you try to back out of this, we can take you to court in Delaware, and the court will force you to buy the company at the agreed price, end quote. Well, Axios noted that Musk could alternatively pay Twitter a large fee to be released from his obligation to buy the company. At one point, they uh, were apoplectic about the prospect of Musk taking over Twitter. Now they're begging him to do just that. Overall, trust in American institutions continues to sharply decline. Gallup reports that Americans are less confident in major U.S. institutions than they were a year ago, with significant declines for 11 of the 16 institutions tested and no improvements for any. The largest declines in confident are 11 percentage points for the Supreme Court, as reported in late June before the court issued its uh, ruling on gun laws and abortion, and 15 points for the presidency, matching the 15-point drop in President Joe Biden's job approval rating since the last confidence survey in June of last year. Well, this year's poll marks new lows in confidence for all three branches of the federal government, the Supreme Court at 25 percent, the presidency at 23 percent, and Congress. Five other institutions are at their lowest point in at least three decades of measurement, including the church or organized religion at 31 percent, newspapers at 16 percent and criminal justice system at 14 percent, big business, 14 percent and the police. Axios says that television news is today considered the second least trusted institution in the country following Congress. According to the poll, the trust fall in the news media 
has been driven mostly by Republicans. Just 5% of Republicans said they had a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in newspapers compared to 35% of Democrats. Only 8% of Republicans said they had a good, uh, a great deal of or quite a lot of confidence in TV news compared to 20% of Democrats. And independents' view, uh, views are generally closer to Republicans. Hugh Hewitt weighs in saying, I believe this. The first question is why? Second, how to repair? Representative uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is being mocked for supporting Supreme Court justice intimidation via Twitter. The Washington Examiner reports that the representative received major pushback on social media for a post she made mocking Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh was dining at Morton's, the steakhouse in downtown Washington on Wednesday night when a group of abortion rights protesters was tipped off on his location, forcing him to exit the restaurant through a back door. Joe Concha says a sitting lawmaker advocates harassment of a sitting Supreme Court justice just weeks after a man was charged with attempted murder of that justice. Leaving a question mark. Tom Fitton says AOC, a Marxist politician, supports illegal intimidation of Supreme Court justices because she is angry that states are once again able to protect the rights of life of unborn human beings. And finally, on Twitter, the White House remains unwilling to denounce the acts of intimidation. Teen Vogue publishes an abortion guide for the young and impressionable girls. Town Hall points out that Teen Vogue is glamorizing abortions for young girls, giving them insight um, uh, on how to get the procedure done following the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe, titled How to Get an Abortion If You're a Teen After Roe v. Wade Was Overturned. A contributor, Laura Rankin, provided a detailed guide on how minors can navigate abortion restrictions as a teenager. Apparently, they don't need parents and mostly without them ever knowing. Teen Vogue says if you aren't comfortable telling a parent about your decision to have an abortion, you can seek what's called a judicial bypass in one of the many states that has the system. And it explains what the judicial bypass is and how to go about it. U.S. officials chastise China for supporting Russia's war, furthering tensions between the two nations. ABC points out that China's support for Russia's war with Ukraine is complicating U.S.-Chinese relations at a time when they're already beset by rifts and enmity over numerous other issues. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken told his Chinese counterpart on Saturday. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi blamed the U.S. for the downturn in relations and said that American policy has been derailed by what he called the misperception of China as a threat. Many people believe that the United States is suffering from a China phobia, he said, according to a Chinese statement. If such a threat expansion is allowed to grow, U.S. policy toward China will be a dead end with no way out, end quote. In five hours of talks in their first face-to-face meeting since October, Blinken said he expressed deep concern about China's stance on Russia's actions in Ukraine and didn't believe Beijing's uh, protestations that it was uh, neutral in the conflict were believable. The talks had been arranged in a new effort to try to rein in or at least manage rampant hostility that's come to define recent relations between Washington and Beijing. The Wall Street Journal says the Biden administration wants to ensure that China which uh, this year signed a broad cooperation agreement with Russia amid talk of a no-limits partnership, doesn't lend Moscow support in the Ukraine war. China has cast itself as neutral on the war, but Chinese diplomats have repeatedly said Russia's concerns over the expansion of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization are legitimate and said that Western powers, the U.S. in particular, are to blame for pushing Moscow into a corner. Of course, Moscow initiated the conflict with Ukraine that 
resulted in the expansion of NATO. According to a readout of China's foreign ministry, Mr. Wang told Mr. Blinken that if the U.S. wanted to avoid conflict, it needs to stop interfering in China's internal affairs and refrain from harming China's interest in the name of human rights. He also took aim at what he describes as rampant sinophobia in Washington. The U.S. military is moving to cut pay and benefits of reservists and National Guardsmen who remain unvaccinated. Roughly 57,000 Army National Guardsmen and Army reservists who have yet to get vaccinated against the coronavirus will be barred from their duties, effectively cutting their pay and benefits, according to an Army official. Beginning January, or excuse me, July 1st, 2022, members of the Army National Guard and U.S. Army Reserve who have refused to um, uh, refuse the lawful Department of Defense COVID-19 vaccination order without an approved or pending exemption, may not participate in federal funding drills and training and will not receive pay or retirement credit, the Army said in their July 1st release. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin in November said that members of the Army National Guard and Air National Guard who refused to get vaccinated would be barred from participating in trainings and their pay would be blocked. Austin also warned that the continued refusal to get vaccinated could result in separation or expulsion from the service. The New York Post weighs in, saying about 13 percent of National Guardsmen and 12 percent of reservists were unvaccinated the day after the deadline passed. Army officials are hoping to change the minds of those resistant to the vaccine. We're going to give every soldier every opportunity to get vaccinated and continue their military career. According to the director of the Army Guard, Lieutenant General John Jensen, in a statement to military.com. We're not giving up on anybody until the separation paperwork is signed and completed. As of Friday, 1,100, 1,000, I should say 1,148 active duty soldiers have been removed from the Army for failing to comply with the vaccine mandate, according to military.com. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show coming up later in the second hour of today's program. We'll uh, hear from Kevin Goose, Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up, second hour, Kevin Goose, Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. Well, Governor Chris Sununu predicts a recession is approaching and suggests firing the U.S. Treasury Secretary for misleading Americans. The Daily Wire reported that New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, who's a Republican, predicted that a recession is coming. He blasted the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, claiming she's completely misled the country and should be fired. He made the remarks during an interview on CNN State of the Union on Sunday. A um, recession is coming, he says. You cannot add $5 trillion to America's balance sheet and just hope it goes away. The recession is coming. The Fed, I think, has known this for a while. They're kind of, uh, they've kind of ignored it, the governor said, speaking to CNN host Jake Tapper. CNN reports that I would fire the, tre- the tre- secretary, rather. I, would, I think she has uh, misled the country, and that's a bad idea. Um, The Hill reports that it comes as a new poll shows a majority of Americans believe a recession is already here and a whopping 96 percent said they feel at least some impact from decades high inflation jacking up the cost of living across the country. Well, that's certainly the case, although you have to have two consecutive quarters for it technically to be a recession. Shinzo, uh, Shinzo Abe's assassination has led to landslide victory for his party in parliament. 
Uh, Police in Japan have launched a murder investigation into the assassination of the former Japanese prime minister, Shinzo Abe. But little is known about the suspect who was arrested at the scene of the fatal shooting on Friday. Abe, 67, was pronounced dead by doctors at the medical center hospital in Nara at about 5.03 p.m. local time on Friday, just over five hours after being shot while delivering a campaign speech in front of a small crowd on a street. The 41-year-old shooter has admitted to shooting Abe. Uh, The police there said during the news conference on Friday, Axios points out that Japan's ruling coalition won a sweeping supermajority in the country's parliamentary elections on Sunday, which would enable it to fulfill former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's enduring ambition to reform the country's uh, pacifist constitution. Why it matters? Well, the elections were held two days after Abe's shocking assassination at a campaign stop. Uh, Winning the parliament's upper house was his dream. Abe resigned from his post as prime minister in 2020 to be succeeded by the current prime minister, um, but remained an influential figure in the two leaders shared liberal Democratic Party. The big picture, the liberal Democratic Party and its coalition partners won 87 seats in Sunday's election, surpassing the 70 needed to form a supermajority. Senjo Abe's um, longtime goals could very well be reached. Grocery store shelves in Holland are empty. That's due to a farmer's protest. ABC points out that bales of hay lie burning along Dutch highways. Supermarket shelves stand empty because distribution centers are blocked by farmers. Then at dusk, a police officer pulls his pistol and shoots at a tractor. Dutch farmers are embroiled in a summer of discontent that shows no sign of abating. Their target, government plans to rein in emissions of nitrogen oxide and ammonia that they say threatens to wreck their agricultural way of life and put them out of business. The reduction targets could radically alter the Netherlands' lucrative agriculture sector, which is known for its intensive farming and may also foreshadow similar reforms and protests in other European nations whose farmers also pump out pollutants. So could there be a famine coming in conflict with other priorities? One writer says they still um, they're still. Uh, out protesting and for your listeners uh, they're protesting because our government is trying to take their land away they're actually now enforcing new regulations that are not even based on an actual law that will expropriate our farmers of their property their land by 2030 for about 30 percent meaning that most of them will go completely out of business and the dutch farming industry is a very lucrative industry we're the second largest exporter in the world after america and we're only a very tiny country so imagine this is their livelihood these farmers have family businesses they have existed for centuries and they're now being robbed of it by our government and they have nothing to say against it well the white house is attempting to spin the president's latest teleprompter gaffe Town Hall points out that you won't believe your ears, and according to the White House, they don't want you to. After the president misread the teleprompter, White House Assistant Press Secretary Emily Simons attempted damage control in defending the president's blunder. During a White House event, the president was uh, reading the teleprompter, and instead of following the instructions that read, end of quote, repeat the line, Biden actually read that line word for word, end of quote, repeat the line. Deputy Press Secretary Emily Simon said, no, he said, let me repeat that line. A little damage control. Border agents have been cleared but still face discipline. There's no evidence that agents involved in this uh, 
incident struck intentionally or otherwise any migrant with their reins. That's according to U.S. Customs and Border Protection. They concluded following an extensive investigation into an incident last year in which Border Patrol agents on horseback attempted to address a massive number of Haitian migrants who were crossing the U.S. border into Texas. At the time of the incident, the president erroneously claimed the migrants had been strapped by the border agents and promised that those people will pay. So regardless of whether or not they did or didn't strap the migrants, they have to be paid because that's what the president said. Since the incident last September, the agents involved have been relegated to desk duty where they remain even after having been cleared of wrongdoing. Yet, in an apparent effort to justify the condemnation, despite the results of the investigation, Customs and Border Protection Commissioner Chris Magnus blasted the Border Patrol, claiming that agents showed discrimination and intolerance and that some of their conduct was unprofessional and deeply offensive. Meanwhile, speaking of deeply offensive, the Department of Homeland Security has a new migrant policy that effectively acts as a backdoor pathway to citizenship, as those... uh, who entered the United States illegally but have been granted a temporary protected status will be allowed to travel outside the country and will be judged as inspected upon return. Put simply, it's backdoor amnesty, which former U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services Director Ken Cuccinelli called another brutal stomping on the rule of law. There seems to be a theme, the rule of law, or at least the absence of it. Associate Justice Kavanaugh was chased out of a D.C. restaurant U.S. Supreme Court Associate Justice, who recently survived an assassination attempt, was forced to leave a Washington restaurant after a group of protesters descended on the establishment. Now, uh, the left media pundits made light of the incident by mocking Kavanaugh and even seeking to justify the harassment. MSNBC contributor Ellie Mistal uh, wrote on Twitter, I really can't get over the fact that a right was uh, taken away from half the country and about 75 percent of the country thinks that the real problem are the 25 percent of us who are angry about it and are using whatever voice we have to protest and not comply with it. Well, it's a bit different from that, but nonetheless, they're now offering money to anyone who can locate a Supreme Court justice and uh, additional funds if they can keep an eye on them until protesters can arrive. The Wisconsin Supreme Court says ballot drop boxes aren't allowed in the state. And according to the World Economic Forum, gas prices must be even higher to save democracy. That is actually a goal. Scranton Joe's approval rating sank to an historic 29%. The U.S. now spent more in Ukraine than in the first five years in Afghanistan. And London Breed has replaced ousted D.A. Chesa Boudin uh, with recall proponent, uh, proponent Brooke Jenkins. And Philadelphia teens uh, beat a 73-year-old man to death with a traffic cone. Gun applicants in uh, New York will have uh, to list their social media accounts. Well, on this day in history, 1798, the U.S. Marine Corps is formally reestablished by a congressional act that also creates the U.S. Marine Band. 1804, Vice President Aaron Burr mortally wounds former Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton during a pistol duel in Weehawken, New Jersey. 1859, Big Ben, the great bell inside the famous London clock tower, chimes for the very first time. 1914, Babe Ruth makes his Major League Baseball debut, pitching the Boston Red Sox to a 4-3 victory over the Cleveland Naps, later known as the Indians. 1937, composer George Gershwin dies at a Los Angeles hospital of a brain tumor at age 38. 1952, the Republican National Convention meeting in Chicago nominates Dwight D. Eisenhower for president and Richard M. Nixon for vice president. 
1955, the U.S. Air Force Academy swears in its first class of cadets as it, uh, at its temporary quarters in Lowry Air Force Base in Colorado. 1960, the novel To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee is first published by J.B. Lippincock and Company. 1972, the World Chess Championship opens as Grandmaster Bobby Fischer of the United States and defending champion Boris Spassky of the Soviet Union begin play in Iceland. Fischer would win after 21 games. And finally, on this day in history, 2015, Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, Mexico's most notorious drug lord, escapes from a maximum security prison through an underground tunnel you're listening to the georgine rice show you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq hey welcome back you're listening to the georgine rice show president biden touted friday's jobs report as significant progress and economic recovery but he ignored the uneven unemployment rate with conservative red states beating liberal states in jobs growth growth When it comes to beating a likely recession, red states are leading the charge, adding 341,000 jobs since February of 2020. Blue states hemorrhaged 1.3 million jobs through May, according to an analysis of the Labor Department data by the Brookings Institute, the Wall Street Journal reported. Well, it's incredible that some 46 million people moved to a different zip code between February of 2021 to 2022, according to the journal's report of Moody's analysis of Equifax, Inc. consumer credit reports. The states that gained the most, led by Florida, Texas, and North Carolina, are almost all red, as defined by the Cook political report based on how states voted in the past two presidential elections, the journal noted. The states that uh, lost the most residents are almost all blue, led by California, New York, and Illinois. Well, the irony of Friday's jobs report is that it brings further pressure on the Federal Reserve to plunge the U.S. into a recession by hiking interest rates, possibly by three quarters of a point, all in hopes of slowing inflation. Well, as mentioned before, Tesla's CEO, uh, Elon Musk, is terminating his bid to purchase Twitter for $44 billion, sending a letter to the social media giant's board on Friday, stating that he's ending the acquisition. The letter, a regulatory filing from attorney Mike Ringler, states that Twitter is in material breach of multiple provisions of their April 25th merger agreement and appears to have made false and misleading representations upon which Mr. Musk relied when agreeing to purchase the company. Twitter responded to Musk's letter Friday saying it would sue to uphold the deal. Musk's letter states that Twitter is required to provide all the data that he requested for any reason a reasonable business purpose related to the consummation of the transaction. Since agreeing to the deal, Musk has uh, argued that Twitter is undercounting fake bot accounts, and this information is fundamental to Twitter's business and financial performance. Well, Musk uh, claims that Twitter has not complied with its uh, contractual obligations, according to the letter posted on the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission website. For nearly two months, Mr. Musk has sought the data and information necessary to make an independent assessment of the prevalence of fake or spam accounts on Twitter platforms, the letter reads. Sometimes Twitter has ignored Mr. Musk's requests. Sometimes it has rejected them for reasons that appear to be unjustified. And sometimes it is claimed to comply while giving Mr. Musk incomplete or unusable information. Well, according to the letter, Musk has been seeking information about Twitter's process for auditing the inclusion of spam and fake accounts among uh, its uh, monetized daily active users or MDAU, Twitter's uh, process for identifying and suspending fake accounts, board materials related to the company's 
calculations, materials related to Twitter's financial conditions. The letter states that Musk negotiated access to this data and information as part of his agreement to purchase the company. Now, interestingly enough, they have worked very hard to prevent him from gaining access to that information. But if it goes to court, and it most assuredly at this point seems that it will, that information will not only be made available to Mr. Musk, but my guess is to the general public as well. In other news, the Biden administration has announced that it plans to block new offshore drilling in the Atlantic and Pacific and may allow only 11 new leases for drilling in the Gulf of Mexico and off the coast of Alaska over the next five years. It's doing that all while releasing our strategic reserves to other countries. But, yeah, it's Vladimir Putin's price hike. Well, the president and his um, Supporters made it plain that they intend to wipe out fossil fuel production in the United States. Never mind that the so-called green energy infrastructure to replace fossil fuels is not in place and would never match our energy needs, even if it were. Never mind that the economy will be severely disrupted and tens of millions of people will suffer the consequences, including all while uh, jobs, um, uh, the president's uh, climate advisor, uh, Gina McCarthy, bragged about killing Well, ever since uh, his first day in office, when he killed the Keystone XL pipeline, the president said has consistently done everything possible to cripple oil and gas suppliers in the U.S. Naturally, the market responded in kind with high gas prices, high inflation and now a highly likely recession. The president has uh, blamed virtually everyone except himself, most recently the Republicans and the Easter Bunny for the mess. He even uh, took gas station um, uh, owners to task in a tweet That was roundly criticized and ridiculed for its empty headed premise. Well, the president has created the mess and he's entirely to blame. Unfortunately, we have yet to see the full extent of the damage. The president's attack on the oil and gas industry reverses all the work done during the previous administration to make America energy independence. Remember that brief but glorious time. We were a net exporter of oil and natural gas. Prices at home were lower and we were doing it with environmentally sound practice. Now, at some point, perhaps we will have a system in which we can use other means. But at this point, the infrastructure is not in place, nor will it ever be able to by all reliable estimates to stand on its own. Well, just in time for the 2024 campaign to begin, the Supreme Court last week decided to take up a voting rights case for its 2022-23 term beginning this fall. We don't know when opening arguments will commence, but when the court takes up Moore versus Harper, it will be closely watched and billed as a partisan measure attempting to assist Republicans and to the horror of left-wing pundits, perhaps a vehicle to allow Donald Trump to cheat his way into office in 2024. There were checks in place to keep Trump from stealing a second term in office, complained Philip Bump of The Washington Post. The Supreme Court will consider whether those checks might, to some degree, be weakened, end quote. So it will be another volatile season. Or as New York University constitutional law professor Melissa Murray told NPR, in this particular case, the question is going to be whether state courts have the authority to review the state constitution to impose limits on electoral policies that disenfranchise voters. For example, like partisan gerrymandering, which, of course, was done extensively this year by politicians on the left and has been done historically on the right. So this kind of could have very real consequences on the ground that make it harder for certain members of the uh, polity to register their participation in the democratic process. And quote, interestingly, politicians only care when it's their ox that's being gored. Well, of course, the left is going to play its voter suppression card. Indeed, the administration sued Arizona on Tuesday last on that very basis. 
That whole Jim Crow uh, canard was a favorite trope in Georgia, Texas, and elsewhere, but was not true. At issue in the case going before the Supreme Court is a judicial principle called independent state legislator, uh, legislature theory. Simply put, if the court rules as the plaintiffs hope it will, there would be a much smaller role for the state judicial system to play in enacting voting law. While it won't be completely eliminated, the tendency for losing, usually on one side of the political ledger's candidates, to run to a judge for a decision in their favor may be curtailed when the Supreme Court speaks. Well, Moore versus Harper stems from developments in North Carolina, where the state Supreme Court interjected itself into congressional redistricting by tossing out a Republican-drawn district map and distri- uh, dictating a more Democratic-friendly map of its creation to be used. And while the state's highest court is also an elected body and has uh, four to three Democrat lean, the argument by the Republican plaintiffs is that, according to the plain language of the Constitution, the legislature should dictate election law. Again, this will be a um, significant issue as we approach the midterm elections. The Supreme Court has decided it will take this case up in its next uh, next season. Well, the GOP is charging that Google is exercising email suppression, and it's cost them both financially and in terms of influence. Republicans have raised another complaint against big tech. This one deals specifically with Google over the claim that the tech giant has engaged in email suppression that's cost the party potentially billions in campaign donations. Big tech has been silencing conservative voices and actively working against Republicans for multiple cycles. That's the charge from the Republican National Committee chair, Ronna McDaniel. National Republican Senatorial Committee Chair Rick Scott and National Republican Campaign Committee Chair Tom Emmer. They added that Google's email suppression, which affects the GOP's fundraising and GoTV efforts, is another egregious example. Silicon Valley oligarchs are suppressing free political speech. Well, in defending their claim, the Republicans pointed to a North Carolina State University study released in March. It found Google had flagged as spam upwards of 60 percent of Republican campaign emails sent in 2020. The Republicans contended that Google's illegitimate flagging had cost the party an estimated $2 billion in donations since 2019. Well, Google's unsurprisingly denied uh, it had uh, engaged in intentionally biased and politically motivated spam filtering, claiming the email users set their own spam filter preferences. Our own Emmy Griffin explained in April that there are some legitimate reasons for Google's claim, yet the same North Carolina state study found that both Outlook and Yahoo flagged more Democrat campaign emails as spam than they did GOP, though to a much lesser degree than Republicans experienced with Google. Well, as big tech companies have used a fleet of dubious and blatantly biased third-party fact-checkers to engage in censorship of conservative voices and views on their social media platforms, it's natural that Republicans suspect a similar type of situation with Google's email spam flaggers. By what uh, mechanism or algorithm, uh, algorithm rather, is Google setting its spam filters and who is uh, determining the parameters? Well, again, the charge has been made and we'll follow the story if and as it develops. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show coming up in our second hour after news and traffic. Kevin Goose, dry bones, redeeming your past. We'll also talk about 90 prosecutors uh, who refuse to enforce pro-life laws eschewing the rule of law. And that's really a theme we're seeing in other areas as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest in his latest book points out that throughout life's journey, everyone has moments when the past affects the present. We all know what that's about. We come to a crossroads where the past has to be faced, and we know on some level our lives require God's healing. Well, these junctures usually fall under one of three categories, believing our best is behind us, believing we missed our best through bad decisions, or believing the hurts caused by others or ourselves are insurmountable to live our best life in God. Well, his book is titled Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past Invites You to See Healing. It's not only possible but that it can be yours for um, for time and eternity. Well, Kevin Goose is my guest. He served in ministry since 1991. His deep conviction is that anyone can discover all of God's potential for their life. In addition to pastoring, Kevin has done leadership development, been a life coach to young fathers, a director of hospice, and a high school soccer coach. He's been married to Beth since 1989. They have four children, five grandchildren, um, two sons-in-law, and a daughter-in-law. He joins us today to talk about uh, his book, Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me. You know, this is a season in which many of us, although not all, have more time to really think about uh, things that we might not um, be able to or, or were able to avoid during times when we were more active outside of our home. So this is a very timely subject um, dry bones redeeming your past. And let's begin by uh, drawing attention to the reference that dry bones uh, makes from Scripture. This is a reference to Ezekiel. Can you explain to listeners who may not be familiar with the story uh, what these dry bones represent? Yes, the, the dry bones in Ezekiel represents when uh, the Lord shows Ezekiel, the nation of Israel, and basically beyond hope. And as he shows him the vision of these dry bones, he asks him, can these bones live again? And Ezekiel, he answers wisely, and he says, Lord, um, you know. And then God begins to show him how what was dead could be alive again. And so the reference for us in the book is that there are times in our lives, it just happened in my own story, but I know in many others, where we look at, so to speak, things in shambles, and God says, can I do something with this? And really all we know to say is, well, Lord, you know, meaning we sure hope so, but we're not sure. But God has a way of letting us know that, yes, he can rebuild what was broken and he can make alive what was dead. You know, I think oftentimes when we read in Scripture a reference like that, you've just mentioned from Ezekiel 37, it's easier for us to imagine that that could happen than that our past, our history the thing we look back on with regret um, can be reconciled, redeemed, and we can move forward in hope. Why do you think it's so challenging for us to uh, to imagine that we too can find uh, redemption, that we can find uh, that our past is redeemed? There are a couple of things I think really are, are pivotal in that. One, I find that for many of us and for many people, forgiving themselves is sometimes harder than forgiving others because we we replay thoughts, attitudes, actions, behaviors that we're like, how could I have done that? Or why did this happen? And so I think this forgiving of self, it's almost like we, we practically have a hard time believing that God is greater than what we've done, which ties into the second is, is that we don't make the shift from shame to regret. 
you know, shame like the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve confronted with their sin, they run from God and hide. Mm -hmm. Where where repentance is where we run to God and say, Lord, you're our only hope. And I think that for some people, whether it's not forgiving themselves or getting stuck in a place of shame, they have a hard time seeing a way forward. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that's uh, ripe territory for the enemy who wants to exploit our inability to fully experience the forgiveness, the redemption, and the healing that God has in store for us and can literally wreck our lives based on a past experience that we may have repented of and moved on from. Uh, So it's really important, this book, Redeeming Your Past, getting us to a place where we not only accept what God has given us, um, that we are able to move forward without shame, as you've described. Uh, Absolutely. You know, it's this... It's the sense that the enemy lies to us when when he tempts us, somehow believing that God is holding out on us, right? Temptation at its core is, I'm questioning God's character, his commands, but then if I give in to temptation and sin, then he just kicks us when we're down and tries to make us believe we're unlovable, unforgivable. And so your point is, is so right that this moving past that shame and then seeing that God can do something um, is so key. How personal is this book um, to you? It's very personal. You know, I had been in ministry when when really I hit bottom. I'd been in ministry about 25 years, uh, had been married about 27 years, and I was the poster child for burnout. Uh, I was just a hard driver who just on some level believed if I pushed harder, I could escape what were those either hurts from the past or even the disappointments in the present. And I became very bitter and very blinded. And unfortunately, there came a point where I crossed some ethical and moral boundaries that required me to step back from from ministry and walk through restoration. Um, I had broken my covenant with God, with my wife. I had, you know, brought hurt and to other people, my children, family, and really had brought shame to the name of Jesus Christ. And so personally, I had to walk this journey when Ezekiel, although he hadn't been wrong, but in comparing to drive, I did the ash heap. Um, he was like, Lord, I don't even see a way forward. But God revealed himself in a powerful way. And so this book comes out of uh, God healing me and my family from a broken place that many would have thought wasn't possible. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So this is uh, definitely a hopeful book. What are some of the lessons that you learned on your journey to uh, to healing? You know, there there are kind of a few that really stand out to me as pivotal, and and that is that God can see us through the lens of forgiveness and give that forgiveness, but I have to be patient for the journey of other people to see my heart and my life. Mm. It's it's kind of like I want. God sees my heart, and so he knows my intentions, but other people can only see actions. And so I think a first principle was I couldn't be frustrated or put demands or deadlines on people for their journey to not just forgive, but also to trust. And that was pivotal because the deeper the relationship, sometimes the longer the journey. And so it was important for me to learn to rest in my identity in God, even though he was very clear to me that the journey of healing with people is different, and just because they have a journey doesn't mean that they're doing something wrong. But that was a first key lesson. Mm, mm. Yeah, and that can be very, uh, very challenging. Now, what advice do you give to someone who feels that they have made such horrific 
a mess of their life. They've made such serious mistakes that there's really no hope for a better future. I mean, you've already given us a glimpse into your own story and that journey of healing and restoration. But what do you say to the one who says, well, but, you know, my situation is is beyond the pale? You, you know, first is that even though it's hard for us to to come to grips with what we're feeling, there's a couple key principles. It's good to acknowledge what we're feeling, but I, I heard a pastor say once, my feelings are real, but they may not always be right. And in that, there has to come a place where I would say to somebody that we have to make a decision, even if our emotions have to come along in time, where the blood of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ is greater in my life than what I've done wrong. Uh, And so there's a place of saying, Lord, even my failures can't be bigger than you. And then second in that, I believe there's a hope in Scripture that because God doesn't hide from us the broken people that he had to redeem and restore. I mean, many people, if we were God's HR department, we, we may not have hired Moses you know, or David, we would have said that, that, that Peter was there. We would have said, what do you mean Rahab or Ruth? But God has this amazing way to say, look, you see what that's broken? But that person is ready for me to be their everything. And now I can assure them we see them as great saints of the scripture, but we have to be mindful. They began as broken people that God had to redeem. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to take a hopeful look of how to redeem our past from that status of dry bones. Again, my guest this afternoon is Kevin Goose, uh, and his book is titled Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Kevin Goose, who is the author of Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. Now, you break down three ways in which we look at our past, uh, coming to the conclusion that uh, we are beyond hope. Can you describe for us these three ways in which we tend to look back and uh, imagine that there is no uh, hope for redemption? Yes, the first is the glory days, and that's where a person looks back at a time and says, my life was at its best then, and they are struggling with either trying to recreate it in the present or having a frustration that they can't, and so there's a sense in which they have to let go to move forward. The second is when people have regrets over missed opportunities. It's kind of like the, the opposite of the first. It's saying, oh, if I would have done something different or better or right, my life wouldn't be where it is now. And they believe that they're living a consolation prize life as well. This is the best I can have. And they don't have a full picture of redemption. And the third is the healing from past pain, which can be either or both pain that I've caused or the pain that has been done to me. And there are times people are dragging that along with them as an open wound or a bitterness or a pain in their life that God needs to bring healing to. Mm. You write that our decisions can either break the bonds of the past or perpetuate past failures into ongoing behavior. Explain what you mean by that and where we begin once we've identified, okay, this is where I am. This is where I'd like to go. How do I get from here to there? Yes. I like to picture it from like a, um, a chore my mom used to give me as a child, and that was pulling weeds. I would sometimes try to snip those dandelions off at the top and think the job was done, but all it took was a little bit of heat and time, and, and the weed would return. 
for many people, they'll look at the example or the event that just happened and they'll try to you know, deal with that in the moment, but they don't go back to the root of where things have come from. And as a result, they tend to be on a repeating cycle. So one of the keys is that whether it's the glory days, past regret, or past pain, is being willing to kind of dig in, whether through the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, a skilled helper, a pastor, to be able to dig in and say, now, wait a minute, where did this start in my life as a root because this needs to be dug out. I'm tired of the snipping and going back, snipping, returning, and going back. And so by getting to the root, we can experience healing that doesn't just deal with the symptom, but deals with the core issues. Mm. What role does humility play in redeeming our past? Oh, this one's, this one's tough. You know, these tensions of Scripture, it, it tells us that when we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, then He will lift us up. Because one of the challenges when we're trying to get our past redeemed is we can fall into the traps of either control, uh, impatience, or trying to force something. And humility is is basically saying, Lord, I, I will stay in this posture of repentance and renewal as long as I need to and as long as you have me to. A great example is Zacchaeus, who when he comes to Jesus, he says, I'll give half of what I have to the poor, and if I've taken from someone, I'll return it fourfold. Well, Zacchaeus probably couldn't remember everybody he had ripped off. But he basically said to Jesus, I'm in a posture and place that as you bring people across my path, I'm willing to walk that healing journey. And so humility keeps us from being defensive, which could communicate to people that we're really not sorry. Humility is key to showing the core of our heart that we want to walk this journey with God and others. Mm. One of the things we tend to do when we're on a journey is to look to the right and to the left, to look at others, compare ourselves to them. Uh, but you make the point that when we do that, we can um, distort the way that we see our own lives. We're perhaps less honest or, or our, our goal is distorted or we think less than we ought to. How important is it that we not compare ourselves to others? And what do we do if that's a practice that we are in the habit of doing? You know, if we look to others, the, the problem is it's almost like a type of deflection. And so if we see that starting to happen, it, it doesn't mean we don't love others, but we recognize I can only take responsibility for what God has placed before me. I think of Peter when Jesus restored him after his three denials. Right after Jesus restores him in John uh, 21, Peter looks at the apostle John and says, well, Jesus, what about him? And the Lord says, well, what is that to you? You follow me. And so I believe that when we're distracted, it's like the runner who's coming to the tape, but they look to the side to see how the other person's doing. It slows them and it actually robs them of the victory that they were intended to have. And so I think that it's, it's not a self-absorption, but rather it's a focus that says, my eyes have to be on Jesus and the work he's doing in me. Then others will see that through me. If I compare myself to others, we tend to get coveting or jealous or we feel inferior, and all of those are just hurdles in the healing process. Well, that is so true. I ran for the uh, University of Oregon, and one of the things the coaches always drummed into us was to run straight way through the line, not to look to the right or the left, because you're absolutely right. It will deprive you of those um, absolutely critical seconds as you approach the finish line that mean the difference between victory and defeat. So that's such great, um, great advice. Now, I know for you, the church 
um, came alongside and supported your journey toward healing. Can you comment a little bit about that? Because I think people have different experiences. What role should we anticipate the church uh, to play? And as those of us who are the church are listening, what should our response be as we're witnessing uh, or participating in the journey of uh, those who are looking to see their past redeemed? There are kind of two categories when it comes to the church that I think are pivotal. One is what I call those those core people who will be part of the redemption process. Think of like with the Apostle Paul, Ananias who came to him right after his conversion, or Barnabas who went to him and believed in him and built him up during his discipleship journey. God will have key Christians who can see past what we did and into the core of who we are, either because maybe they weren't hurt as deeply or God's just given them a tremendous gift of a redemptive heart in how they see others. It's vital for a person to connect with those core people who can help along that journey. As to the crowd, I think if people, if they know someone who's who has fallen morally or has failed and committed sin, is that we should never celebrate it. And second, we should avoid cynicism. It's okay to say, I'm mm. disappointed, I'm hurt, um, I feel betrayed. Those are truthful statements, but the recognition is to say that Jesus is more powerful with what they have done wrong in my life. There were people who showed grace that were part of the crowd. Now, long-term, I didn't necessarily stay in, in deep relationship because I was no longer their pastor, but they did it the right way before, so to speak, that relationship faded as it, as it needed to, while others in the core, they walked with me over the course of months and years, and God used them in a pivotal way in my life. We're talking about the book, Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. My guest is Kevin Goose. Uh, bitterness played a role in your healing process, and it's not altogether uncommon if you are reflecting back on those glory days or regrets over missed opportunities or um, you're healing from past pain that either you inflicted on others or others have inflicted on you. How important is it not to uh, descend into bitterness on this journey toward healing? It is essential. Uh, unfortunately, I learned the hard way. When Paul in his letters talks about how bitterness can cause us to bite and devour one another, uh, Jeremiah the prophet, God even said to him in Jeremiah fifteen nineteen that the precious and the vile had to be separated or sifted. Bitterness is a poison. It, it, it's something that can be vile in our lives, and what it does is it pollutes the precious work of God. And so bitterness focuses on what life isn't that I wish it was or what the other person did or your frustration over what I did. And one of the keys was recognizing that God had to extract that and reinstate in my life and as he does in others' lives, gratitude, thanksgiving, praise. Uh, you know, in the scriptures, whether it's Job or other characters, they teach us that even when life is difficult, we can come to a posture of worship and praise and joy, but bitterness will just pull us down. And for some people, they're concerned, but if I let go of that, the other person will get away with it. Or what if God forgives them? But at the core, bitterness hurts the individual. As one pastor, uh, Jimmy Evans says, forgiveness doesn't make the person right. It just makes me free. 
Mm, that's so good. We're talking with Kevin Goose. His book is Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. We're going to take a quick break and continue our conversation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're uh, listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Kevin Goose. He is a pastor and author. His latest book, Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. It is a personal work. He doesn't just write about the subject from a uh, the standpoint of uh, just being theoretical, but this is an experience he has uh, has enjoyed in being reconciled and restored and offers his insight and scripture uh, to uh, those who are in that same position. One of the things you write about is that we oftentimes try to justify our behavior, even when we know it's wrong, and we can uh, really struggle with just admitting that this was wrong. There's no justification for it, although we may have a list of reasons why it happened. Can you talk a little bit about um, having that uh, perspective where you're willing to just admit what's wrong rather than um, uh, trying to justify our behavior? Yes. What happens is with justifying our behavior is that, is that somehow I'm trying to say that someone else's wrongdoing justifies me doing wrong, or in some cases, I'm looking for a shortcut to a destination or a goal. And so what happens is there's these defenses. So like think of Adam in the garden. He tries to blame God. He tries to blame Eve. Yet the most beautiful example in scripture is David in Psalm 51, where after confronted with his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband and Nathan the prophet comes to him and we get to Psalm that comes out of his brokenness, he starts with saying, Lord, against you and you alone, I have sinned. And we joined, there was adultery, there was murder, there was deception. But David understood the problem began with his relationship with God, and then it affected everything else. If we're willing to just say, Lord, no excuses, uh, no explanations, I sinned, I was wrong, what it does, it kind of it lets our guards down, it breaks down the defenses, and then it opens us up for the healing. Otherwise, we're trying to jockey and play games with God and others when God then has to wait for us to become completely broken and ready for his restoring and forgiving work. Oh, that is so good. But I think we do tend to uh, try to fix the people around us rather than work on ourselves when our own past needs redeeming. I suppose that just is an outgrowth of our sin nature. But the temptation is to deflect attention from ourselves, to blame shift. And even in cases where there is blame to go around, what you've just described is what God is is calling us to, is to come honestly before him for the, the role that we have played. Yes, because at the end of the day, I can't take responsibility for what someone else has done I can only take responsibility for my part, even if someone doesn't seek forgiveness and I think they should have, or if someone didn't apologize and I think they should have. It, it, if we can just get ourselves away from that, we come down to, okay, Lord, before you, I want to have things right. The other is, is that if I put focus on others, I can try to become the teacher while I'm still in the role of the student. In other words, God is still, I would say, simmering things, soaking them through our lives and teaching us. And he wants us to wait until it becomes something in the deep place of us before we share it. I know that God put on my heart two to three years before the book was published, the idea of it, but God made it clear, yeah, but I've got to get you far enough down the road, and I've got to do a deeper work in your life before you can really talk about it. And so sometimes we're excited to share what he's teaching, but 
it's we have to be the student before we step into the role of trying to offer help to others. Mm-hmm. You write about uh, what you call rationalized compromise. Can you give us an example of uh, what that is and uh, how we can avoid it? Yes. Yeah, so what happens in rationalized compromise is it may not be my failure, but I see the failures of others and they're significant enough that I could point the finger and say, ah, they're the reason that I'm not close with God or not close with others. So sometimes it could be the flawed messenger in a situation where a pastor like myself has to walk through restoration. Maybe it's someone who keys in on scriptures that speak about other people's sins, but neglect the ones that speak to my heart. It's like the phrase, I love what the Bible says to others. I'm just not too fond about what it says about me. It's the sense of rationalized compromise that I look at what's around me, and then what happens is I'm blind to what's going on in me, and I'm like a person driving down the road with no side mirrors or rearview mirror. I'm crashing into others and causing damage and pain, and my blind spots are actually causing as much, if not more, problems in my mm. sphere of influence. Rationalized compromise is where we say, all right, I may not agree with what that person did, but let's put the side mirrors and the rearview mirror on and let me see things from God's perspective. Yeah. Well, let's talk a bit about uh, forgiveness. You talked about it earlier in our conversation, but uh, what does uh, forgiveness look like in the context of redeeming your past? Now, that may apply to me as I'm seeking forgiveness um, from God and others I may have hurt. It might be forgiving others who have hurt me. And uh, as you uh, talked about earlier, forgiving myself. What does forgiveness look like and entail when seeking to redeem one's past? The first is, harking back to the earlier statement, is that I have to acknowledge that Jesus is greater than every sin, including the sins committed against me or committed by me. So when Jesus teaches us that we are to forgive as we have been forgiven, we make a decision that even if our emotions need time or our thoughts are wrestling, that we do not commit, so to speak, a type of idolatry where someone's evil is greater than God's good. Second, as we walk through that forgiveness, we have to learn to walk in the light of his forgiveness of us even before others are able to forgive and trust us. We must be patient to walk with them, but there's the essence in which our identity has to be solid in God. It's kind of like a phrase a pastor who spoke into my life said. He said, Kevin, you are who God says you are. We have to know who we are in God even as we're walking through the repairing journey with others. And then finally, part of that forgiveness, whether it's forgiving ourselves or forgiving others, it's this recognition that I can't tell somebody when to trust me, but I can choose to be trustworthy. And if it's forgiving another person, it's just saying, God, they may or may not be close in my life moving forward, but I can't let what they've done hold me back And if it's my sin that needs to be forgiven, it's acknowledging that God has a plan that moves beyond that moment, and he doesn't want that to be the defining chapter of my story. Mm. Yeah. At the end of the book, you um, use a metaphor of uh, how people respond at an accident scene. I found that very intriguing. Can you describe a little bit about that that section of the book in which uh, you list some of the reactions people have to an accident? Um, and how that relates to this journey toward redemption. Yes, you picture yourself in a traffic jam on the interstate, 
and we know where there's an accident up ahead. And as we come up, there's all these different people. The healthy ones are the first responders. The men and women whose job it is is to help remove the accident and then help those who are impacted and injured on the road to healing and restoration. The others are people that we call like the historian, the one that wants to keep reminding you what you've done wrong, or the gossip, the one who just wants to tell others, the one who celebrates that they didn't fail like you did. And so what I described is, is that in the accident scene, not every person we come across in the accident of our lives is from God or is best for our healing. We need to look for those trustworthy people who want God's best for us and recognize there'll be people who come in and out that may want to observe and see the wreckage, but they're not interested in what happens after that. And so the chapter is very much about helping people discern who are the helpful people and who are the others we need to let drive on by. But that's such a great uh, part of the book. I really appreciated that. Again, we're talking about the book, Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. My uh, guest is Kevin Goose. Any final uh, advice you'd like to give to those um, who are beginning that journey toward redemption and seeing that their past can, in fact, be put in its proper context when they uh, come to God and seek that, um, that restoration? I would say one, complete surrender to God. Even if we don't know where things are going to go from here, I would encourage them to start with placing everything in his hands and let Jesus Christ be the center of their life. Two, be patient. Sometimes healing is instantaneous, but other times God chooses to work in a journey. It may seem like it'll never end, but to stay patient and don't try to look for shortcuts. And third, even though there may be times where our feelings or our thoughts may point us to past coping mechanisms or past behaviors, we have to recognize that we put those things behind us. We never want to be the one who returns back. God is leading us to the promised land, and there'll come a point where the wilderness must be behind us. And so there's a resolve within them. And then just finally, that even when they're not sure who they are, read what the Bible says about what God declares over their life, and let those be reminders of who they are and who they can be in Him. Amen. Kevin, thank you so much for talking with us today. I so appreciate you and your book, Dry Bones. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, with the fall of Roe versus Wade, 90 left-leaning attorneys general and district attorneys across the country have pledged to not enforce criminal charges related to laws protecting the unborn. That is, laws that allow the unborn's life to be cut short. Well, in a joint statement, these prosecutors emphasize that although they have varying personal and moral beliefs on abortion, they're united in the firm belief that prosecutors have a responsibility to refrain from using limited criminal legal system resources to criminalize personal medical decisions, end quote. Well, the statement organized by Fair and Just Prosecution is a coalition of elected local prosecutors included leaders from 29 states, one territory in the District of Columbia. Now, these attorneys general and district attorneys represent a total of 91.5 million constituents, including 12 states where abortion has been banned or is likely to be banned in the coming weeks. The rule of law apparently is lost in all of this. Again, quoting, with many states now seeking to criminalize those who seek, perform and receive abortion care, abortion care, those two words don't really go together, and providers from criminal charges, 
the executive director of the organization, wrote in a press release, At this frightening and dark moment, we desperately need the bold leadership demonstrated by these signatories and hope to see far more prosecutors across the country join this chorus. Family Research Council's Travis Weber, he's the vice president for policy and government affairs, stressed the serious nature of prosecutors refusing to enforce the law. This has much broader implications. Those entrusted with enforcing our nation's laws abdicate their responsibility by expressly saying they will refuse to enforce them. He was speaking to the Washington Stand. He went on, this is a betrayal of the public trust and undermines the principles which hold our country together. Well, since the overturn of Roe versus Wade, returns authority to the states, to the people, abortion laws across the country vary. People in their respective states have the opportunity to weigh in. Well, last year, Texas passed a law that prohibits abortion except in instances when the procedure would save the life of the pregnant woman or avoid serious risk of substantial impairment. The penalties for doctors who violate this law include loss of medical license, $100,000 in fines, and first-degree felony charges if the child dies. Three Democrat district attorneys in Texas uh, have announced they will not be enforcing this law either. Well, in a statement, one of the uh, the trio uh, wrote that outlawing abortion will not end abortion. It will simply end safe abortions and prevent people from seeking the care and help they need for fear of criminal prosecution. I refuse to subject members of my community to that risk. Now, he doesn't write the law. He enforces the penalties associated with the law. He went on. The attorney general is supposed to advise on the law and enforce the law, not engage in activism. Uh, Weber argued in response from the Family Research Council. This makes this statement all the more nonsensical. Well, similarly, in North Carolina, the attorney general there, Josh Stein, opposed enforcing the state's 20 week abortion ban, despite facing an ultimatum from Republican lawmakers. Uh, Stein responds in a letter saying his department's attorneys are conducting thorough legal review of the law. Stein is among the 90 signatories of the Fair and Just Prosecution Statement. Weber, who practiced law prior to working in public policy, believes that prosecutors refusing to enforce abortion laws leads America into more division and lawlessness. We're seeing this in other areas where the penalties associated with certain crimes are not being applied uh, because attorneys generals or district attorneys have simply decided we're not going to. If constituents or leaders don't like laws, they can work within the system of our constitutional order to change them. Well, tensions remain high in Washington, D.C., following the Supreme Court's recent decision. Last week, the chief security officer at the judicial branch requested that top Maryland and Virginia officials start enforcing laws prohibiting protesters from picketing at Supreme Court justices' suburban homes. No one can deny that the rhetoric of abortion activists has resulted in the justices being more in the crosshairs of the public discussion. This is extremely dangerous. On top of this, there has been a series of attacks on pregnancy resource centers and churches with far too little condemnation from elected leaders. When asked what elected officials can do to restore law and order in a post-Roe world, Weber was pretty clear. Instead of adding fuel to the fire with rhetoric attacking the justices and pregnancy resource centers, elected officials should do their job to enforce the law on the books or change them if they disagree with them. Taking to the streets in a threatening manner is not a solution, however. All Americans and our elected leaders could help lower the temperature by working within our constitutional order instead of undermining it. And you may have heard that, I believe it's on Twitter, that they are now paying people to identify the location of conservative justices, whether they're at home, if they're at a public place, if they're eating dinner with their friends. They're going to be paid for informing 
uh, protesters so that they can come and disrupt their lives. Well, even before the leaked draft opinion indicating that Supreme Court might overrule its 1973 Roe versus Wade decision, creating the right to abortion, a growing number of liberal prosecutors throughout the country appeared determined to protect abortion anyway, their strategy refusing to do their jobs. Thomas Jipping on the same subject says this attorneys general in nearly dozens of a dozen states in the District of Columbia have joined locally elected prosecutors from states across the country and pledging not to prosecute those who provide or receive abortions. They joined 68 prosecutors who published a statement dated October 2020, which characterizes seeking an abortion as a woman's personal choice about her own health and performing an abortion as treatment by doctors. The statement refers to abortion simply as an issue without mentioning, as even the Supreme Court did in Roe, the unborn child that an abortion kills. Thirteen states have enacted laws to criminalize abortion if and when the Supreme Court reverses Roe. They now have five states have pre-Roe abortion prohibitions that would come back into effect as well. And that's already taken place. Their attempt to suggest legitimate reasons for such a blanket dereliction of duty is hardly persuasive. They claim, for example, that they lack resources to pursue such cases, but have no evidence to back that up because none of these laws is yet, or at least at the time, was in effect. And even speculation about the resources that would be needed would not justify a blanket refusal to enforce any of these laws. Enforcing anti-abortion laws is neither pro-life nor pro-choice. It's the rule of law, and that's the role that prosecutors and attorneys general are charged with doing. Imagine if they're permitted to pick and choose which laws they're going to enforce, the ones they like, the ones they don't like. What happens to the rule of law, the predictability of what uh, civil society can expect in order to live peacefully in community? That is at stake in a number of areas, this being the latest. Well, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I do want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.